Welcome to the Physician Negotiator Podcast, where no decision is left to chance. With your host, Doc of All Trades. So today on our show, we have the physician philosopher. Hopefully this might be his inaugural podcast, but depending on uh, the other podcast, well, uh, I'm just hoping, I'm hoping I get to be your first. But anyway, got the physician <laughs> philosopher on today. He is an expert on wealth and uh, wealth and wealth and wellness, and he has a website called thephysicianphilosopher.com. He's uh, done numerous posts. He has an amazing website, and he's been featured on uh, websites such as uh, the White Coat Investor and I believe a Physician on Fire. Is that correct? That is correct. Excellent. Well, hey, uh, I'm going to call you TPP. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. And, uh, you know, we, we, you and I met at FinCon, and we had an awesome time. And uh, one thing we both realized early on is we're both anesthesiologists, and uh, we have a very uh, similar but different practice models. And so uh, I reached out to you and, and uh, thought we could t- discuss that. Uh, now, you are an academic uh, anesthesiologist, and I'm a, an employed anesthesiologist. So I'd like to kind of just talk about the difference between being an employed anesthesiologist in kind of a non not for profit large institution versus an academic um, uh, institution. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, now, how did you go about choosing that you wanted to be in academics? Because you know there are numerous choices that you can make as an anesthesiologist. Me personally, I chose to go into private practice, but you chose group practice. Uh, I mean, uh, academic practice. How, how did that choice take place? Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting journey. I um, I do work at a large academic hospital now, and when I was a resident, I knew a few things about myself. I knew that I liked to teach. I knew that I liked practicing anesthesia, um, and I really didn't have much of a love for research at the time. But fortunately, I'm in a uh, a group at a hospital that doesn't really force that on you. And so it wasn't demanded for me to do research. And ironically, uh, in my third year of residency, I stumbled upon a couple of questions, clinical questions that I felt like weren't answered adequately um, and started a couple of randomized control trials in my last year of residency that uh, ended up concluding as my first year as an attending. So as a, though I started the road not really enjoying research, I found that um, when I was asking a question myself and designing a project to answer it, I actually did enjoy it. So uh, it produced a situation where I wanted to be good at all three things that are academics, which is uh, clinical work, teaching, and research. And to this day, that remains my focus at uh, you know my main gig, uh, is being good at all three of those things. And so that pushed me towards academics because um, some of those, those options are limited in private practice. So did you did you even consider going into private practice at any point? I did. Yeah, there's actually a, a few groups that I looked at, um, and you know the the big draw, of course, in anesthesia at least, is that um, you get to maintain the breadth of practice. Whereas in academics, I'm very defined in a specific niche. Uh, I did a fellowship in regional anesthesia, um, but before I did that, I did consider going into private practice, and the idea of of maintaining a very broad uh, scope of skills was appealing to me. Um, in addition to you know the the various differences uh, between private practice and academics, um, but yeah, I, I definitely thought about it. Well, there's going to be a difference in terms of reimbursement between academics and private practice. Um, was that ever a consideration in, in your decision? 
Uh, it was, um, you know, just like anyone else, I came out with, uh, with student loan debt, um, though I had less than the average. Uh, so, you know, money certainly played a part for me. Uh, it wasn't the, uh, substantial part though. I, um, you know, I really looked at it as what do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to see myself in five or 10 or 15 years and made the decision based on that information. Uh, money did play a part in that, you know, if there was this, this, massive difference between the two. I, you know, I might've been pushed one direction or the other. Uh, but nowadays that, that difference is getting smaller and smaller with each day. And I work at an academic hospital where I'm paid pretty well. And you know, it's funny, I haven't, I haven't really been looking at the differences lately, but when I was coming out of residency, the, the difference was rather large. Um, and back in 2005, when I graduated, they were offering pretty enticing signing bonuses, which then really went away around the, you know, 2011, 2012, and now they've come back with a vengeance. And uh, there are people in my uh, who are graduating that I that I'm currently teaching, teaching and mentoring, who are offered massive signing bonuses. Um, are, do you find that they're giving signing bonuses at in, academic institutions, or have you been enticed with uh, any signing bonuses yourself? Uh, there are. Um you know, it's, it's just different. I think every, every hospital and every anesthesiology group, whether academic or private practice, has a different model. And so where I am, you can get kind of a signing bonus. Um, they you know, may help you with moving expenses. They may help you with uh, the number of shifts that you're required to work that year and decreasing that such that you make more money for less shifts. And sometimes they will give you uh, an outright uh, bonus to start but I would say that, that um, I'd, I'd imagine, at least in my experience, that those numbers um, are going to be smaller than what they are in private practice. Well, you know, and, the, and you also mentioned that you graduated with some student debt. And I imagine there are more opportunities uh, to, to get that student debt um, forgiven in an academic than versus a private practice. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm doing a study uh, in my academic job where, you know, we're looking at student loan debt surveys um, and determining financial literacy is regarding student loan debt management. And, um, you know, in doing that, I discovered that about 75% of hospitals, you know, all comers uh, are 501c3 or governmental hospitals that would qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Um the you know implicit assumption there is that you are in fact employed by that hospital though um, and not working in a private practice group that contracts for the hospital. There's a difference there. Right. Um, but if you are employed by the hospital itself, um, then you have 75% chance uh, going anywhere in the country that your hospital, whether academic or not, is going to qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Obviously, all academic institutions do um, for the most part. Um, and so that did provide an opportunity there, although that's not the route that I'm going personally. Well, you know, I think that would be something really to look into. If 75%, like you said, there's, there's a good chance. And then if you could potentially tie that to a signing bonus, you could take a quite a good dent out of your student loans coming out. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a very different choice would be going into solo practice then. Um, now, the problem is if you do have a lot of debt, a lot of these private practices will have a buy a buy in. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at two different jobs. My current job, there was no buy in. But I looked at another job and the buy in was you get a reduced reimbursement the first year. And that that reduced reimbursement then becomes your buy in. And it could be upwards. Uh, in my case, it was going to be something like one hundred thousand dollars. Wow. So I imagine for a student who's, you know, kind of with debt, they'd be more uh, they'd probably be less willing to take on that risk. And so um, of the graduating residents that I'm mentoring right now, most of them, 
I mean, they have absolutely no desire to take on further risk given their student loans. Um, are you finding that to be the case with your with your graduating residents? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know too many that get excited about having a buy-in uh, when they're carrying three or four hundred thousand dollars in student loans, um, having to buy another you know hundred thousand dollars off of their salary to do that. Um, most people are trying to find a job that balances work and life, and then also allows them to have a high enough income that they can really put a dent in their debt. Uh, and of course, that all assumes that the person knows anything about personal or physician finance, um, which uh, I find is not the majority of people, um, you know, but those that do, yeah, I think that they certainly consider that in the possibility of paying off their debt quickly um, so they can move on with their life and um, try to get ahead financially. Well, you know, again, it also depends on the specialty. So some specialties are obviously much more lucrative oh, in sure. buying into a surgical center as an orthopedic surgeon or another type of uh, surgical specialists could be per- fairly lucrative. Um, whereas, you know, other, you know, other professions like ours, those opportunities really don't exist. So it's really, I think it's uh, specialty specific as well. No, I completely agree. Um, let's see here. So part of the problem that uh, I was looking at a recent survey of graduating um, attendings, and it seems like they, they seem to change jobs rather quickly within the first two years, something like as high as 50% of them will, will change jobs. Um, have you noticed that at your institution? Yeah, I have. It's actually uh, it's actually funny. I was having this conversation with a resident the other day who was just, you know, bent on buying a house when uh, they move out for residency or out they graduate from residency into their in their uh, private practice job. And I really just encouraged the person. I said, you know, the smart thing to do is to rent a house for a year or two and make sure that you like the job and. You know, they asked me why, and I said, well, because I can't tell you the number of people that go to a job, and then a year or two later, they come back and they interview where I am, where they trained, uh, you know, a year or two later. Um, and the reason why is because a vast majority of them sign on to a job that's presented one way, and the expectations don't meet reality when they get there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I absolutely have found this to be true, and I'd say the number is probably pretty large. I think that I heard someone mention the other day that the number is almost 50% um, of doctors will change jobs within the first five years of finishing training. So, you know, as a financial um, expert, do you think this is a a good idea to change jobs that early? Oh, man, it hurts, particularly if you buy a house. I mean, you know, if you buy a $500,000 house and, you know, you're going to expect to cost 10% to sell that house. I mean, you have to come up with 50 grand and most physician loans, which is what most graduating residents are going to use, uh, requires 0% down payment. So not only do they have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, but now they have to come up with 50 or $75,000 to sell their house a year or two later. Uh, And they definitely don't have that in equity at that point. And so uh, it, it, it definitely is a big decision. And the other thing too, is that you know, academics and private practice both have tracks, you know, in academics, it's, uh, your track to become an associate professor from assistant and then from associate to, you know, full professor later. And so if you delay that for two years or three years or five years, because you went to a job you didn't enjoy, uh, that's going to be a problem. And the same thing for private practice. If you join a different group, your partnership track can start all over again. And you're now two or three years behind your peers, uh, because you signed up for a job that, you know, isn't what you wanted. Uh, so it, it has financial and, you know, wellness implications all around. We know what's interesting as physicians, I don't think other professionals realize that as physicians, when we change jobs, in many cases, you have to start over again. Mm -hmm. Whereas with like a CRNA is a perfect example, a CRNA, 
will get compensated based upon years of experience. Whereas with us, we actually have to then rebuild the practice. And so you actually lose money with every uh, change in transaction. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely true. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's such an important decision. You really do want to try to get it right. Uh, but you're also making that decision off of, you know, based off of incomplete information. I mean, you can only know so much about a group before you join. And so I think the best thing to do is just to minimize the amount of damage that could happen if you tried to change jobs later, um, if you didn't like it. And, you know, of course, none of that conversation even involves covering, you know, your, you know, tail for malpractice, um, and whether, you know, the person's going to let you do that. And if you got money up front, that signing bonus that we talked about earlier, uh, or money towards your loans, oftentimes they'll make you pay it back. And, um, and so, you know, you just get further and further and further into the hole. So as many of those things as you can mitigate, uh, when you make that decision, I think that that's the way to go. Yeah. You know, I, uh, was talking to a physician on fire about that and he actually got a hundred thousand dollars signing bonus, but after he had, uh, you know, had attended that that particular job for a period of time, decided it wasn't for him. He ended up having to pay back part of the, uh, that money with interest. And so, the more you talk to people, the more how, uh, more common you realize it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I just recently talked to a guy named um, Alexi Nazem, and he is the owner of Nomad Health uh, Marketplace. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, I haven't. Okay, so Nomad uh, Marketplace is. A place where you can traditionally, you know, traditionally when you're trying to find a job, you might use job boards or uh, go to, um, you know, your um, various websites that have, uh, you know, like the back of a magazine or your publications, et cetera. Well, he's created something where you can actually go there, enter your name, uh, enter your specialty and then find a job. So he's trying to create the like the Uber um, (laughs) of job boards. And it's it's, it's a brilliant idea. And. We were talking about this, and we and he he had a really interesting insight. His marketplace really is looking to help increase improve locum tenens. So, for example, if you're an uh, if you're an employer looking for a high quality provider, and or if you're a provider looking for a high quality employer, it's a way to skip the middleman and find the person directly. And so, he actually recommends doing locums for a couple of years to kind of get a feel for the, you know, maybe the marketplace, the location. Um, which, which I thought was very interesting and, and, you know, with a new gig economy and the way millennials think, it sounds like more and more people are doing that. Um, have you noticed that at all in your institution? You know, I, I have not seen a lot of people go directly into locums tenants, um, like uh, physician on fire did. Um, I, I completely understand why it's appealing, why that would be helpful. Uh, but I haven't seen a lot of my residents you know, personally do that. Um, the ability to, you know, have a 1099 and then pay for, you know, lodging and travel and, you know, pay you a a pretty good fee, um, is, is really appealing, but I haven't noticed that, you know, down in the South where I work. It's a good idea though. Very good idea. Okay. So would you consider yourself a millennial? Uh, yeah, I just, I just meet the criteria. Okay. You now, now, I've noticed that millennials tend to uh, emphasize work, uh, good work-life balance uh, more than compensation and or other things. Where, where do you stand on this? Uh, I'm absolutely a fan of that thought process. Um, you know, I, on my website, I really talk a lot about balancing life and making sure that you're making uh, smart financial decisions, you know, so making the head happy and then also making the heart happy. Um you know, I, I don't think that you can uh, really have profound wellness without um, without doing that. And um, you know, there's there's just things that you know I, I talk about a lot about self identity on 
you know, certain of my posts. And really what I'm getting at there is that as a profession, physicians often lose themselves in who they are and, and being a physician ends up defining them. And I am so many more things outside of being a physician, uh, that I care more about. And that doesn't mean I don't love my job. It doesn't mean I'm not passionate about it or good at it. Uh, but I am, you know, I'm a, a father, I'm a husband, uh, you know, I'm an author and inventor, uh, craft beer lover. I mean, there's so many things I love outside of medicine. And so you have to find balance. Um, no matter how much money you make, if you don't have that balance, uh, you're not going to be happy. And so I, I think that money plays a part, but it is certainly not the most important aspect. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been meeting a lot of um, not only gen, older, older Gen Xers, but um, baby boomers. And they are so defined by, by their work that they, you know, even when they, when they come to retirement, um, they want to put in another year, another year, because mm-hmm. they can't see their, themselves outside of medicine. Yeah, it's, um, it's actually been a fascinating time because, you know, we do have that mix of different generations. And I think that, you know, you know, I, more than anything, I'd probably call myself, so I forget where I read this, but uh, it's called being a zenial. So in between a millennial and a generation Xer. Um, and I can relate to both of those ideas. You know, I can relate to the, um, thought process of the, you know, generation X that, you know, millennials are entitled and, you know, want a bunch of stuff for, for nothing. That's kind of what they argue, which isn't always true. And then millennials just want to know why they want to know why things are the way they are and why they have to remain that way if there's a better way to do it. And, uh, there's been, you know, a lot of tension, honestly, uh, between the, you know, the upcoming resident classes and the people that are in leadership of them, um, because of that, you know, and I think that's a good tension. I think that promotes uh, positive discussions if they're allowed to be had uh, and can result in some good change. But uh, it, it's been really interesting being in, in, in the midst of that. Well, you know, there's so much dogma in medicine that the mere idea of even questioning it, especially back when I was training, was unheard of. And now the millennials, they're very bold and they, they have, you know, they know they can command um, an audience because they're going to be the majority of the, the, the workforce here very, very soon. So um, I've learned a ton from them. Uh, I applaud their efforts. And I, in many ways, I kind of, I kind of wish I was a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting time. Well, you know, the interesting thing about millennials and um, the marketplace, and I've been kind of thinking about this quite a bit in terms of the job choice. So if we want to emphasize work-life balance, if we want to have the ability to have lives outside of medicine in exchange for um, less control at, in the workplace, there seems to be a, an issue with that. So, for example, um, when I came out of medicine, 30% of people, of physicians were employed, um, whereas now 30% of physicians are um, going into private practice. Now, the, the downside of being employed is you really don't have control over your schedule. You don't have control over um, you, you have no control over the business and you're kind of dictated by um, people who are running the business what what your your hours need to look like now we do that in exchange so that we don't have to run a business but it, it seems to me that the long game it may be not to our benefit to be controlled by others and so I'm wondering if that's going to interfere in work-life balance in the near future. Yeah, definitely can. Um, you know, there are, there are pluses and minuses to this. Uh, you know, the, the true solo practice that was, um, you know, granted for anesthesia, that's never really been a thing. Um, it's been, be very tough to cover 
uh, something 24 hours a day for 365 days a year by yourself. Um, but you know, that's the ultimate autonomy when you have a, a family practitioner or, you know, an ophthalmologist, or dermatologist that, that owns their own practice, um, and they can dictate their schedule however they want. Um, you know, so from that end of the spectrum to being an employee where you were told when and where to show up for work every day, uh, and how you're going to do your job, uh, that, um, that's the spectrum. And I, and I do agree, but you know, the benefit of being an employee is exactly what you said. I don't have to worry about any of the overhead. I don't have to worry about billing. I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, any of the business aspect of medicine, uh, in terms of my main job. And that is a benefit, uh, for me, but it does come with the cost of, of not having as much flexibility in the schedule. And also, um, you know, this may be true for, uh, private practice groups too, with, you know, senior partners, but, uh, you know, a lot of my job is, is dictated, uh, by those that are above me and, and, um, you know, what they think is best for my career. And, uh, and that's, that's an interesting place to be, uh, being a, a very proud, independent person. Uh, so, you know, there, there are, are pros and cons to it for sure. Well, let's get into the weeds a little bit then. Um, so you, 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 you mentioned it, that if you're in solo practice, obviously you eat what you kill. And so if you don't kill anything, you're not going to get any, you know, there's gonna be a lot of comp at risk. And with most employed uh, positions, and I'm sure that's the case with the academic positions, you have a guaranteed comp, right? You're, so you'll have a, a portion of your contract that says, this is how much money you're going to make, irregardless of how productive you are. Um, and usually they'll put some money at risk as to incentivize you to do something. Um, and in the case of my job, I'm incentivized to not only um, work to, to, to meet a certain level of, you know, um, ASA units or RBUs, but also there are quality indicators that we're expected to meet, like case cancellations. Um, there are um, staff satisfaction scores, uh, patient satisfaction scores, um, showing up on time. So they, they created this, what we call a balanced scorecard, to make sure that you know not only do we meet um, the requirements to generate money for the hospital, but also that we're being good stewards of that of, of, of our institution. Um, do you have something similar to that in your institution? Uh, we, we definitely have, um, a base salary and then incentives. Um, they're not the same as yours though, which I, you know, I thought I was very interested listening to what you were listing off there. So, uh, we have incentives for academic stuff. So there's a non-clinical incentive, you know, which might include uh, attendance at certain things like grand rounds or you know, faculty meetings. Um, it also includes uh, billing. So, you know, how frequently do you close your charts on time? Um, and, uh, you know, there are other things that incentivize us for academics. And so uh, in terms of, you know, just pure research or teaching um, and there's a point system. And depending on where you fall in that point system, you, you get a certain incentive. Uh, we are also incentivized in that uh, when we pick up an extra shift, we make more money. So uh, we are not paid a flat salary. Um, we do have a base salary, but if we uh, increase our work and uh, provide more shifts than we're required, then we get paid more. And I do know that you know, for at least the surgeons at my institution, um, you know, they they are they definitely have an RVU uh, component to how they get paid, uh, and so that allows them to do more cases and to make more money that way, as opposed to picking up shifts like we do. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's interesting how you can, you know, um, I guess each, each, each employer will have certain things that they deem very important. So like, for example, meetings, attending meetings for some employers is very important. So, um, 
we, I, I personally can't stand meetings. I used to attend them all the time. Um, and now we no longer have to attend these meetings, but I, I can see, I could see the value in forcing people to attend meetings, especially if they are trying to enhance the, your department, like for example, teaching residents or, or grand rounds. Um, so do, do they pay per meeting or do you have to meet a certain threshold of meetings at your institution? Uh, yeah. So the way that it works for us is that we, um, we have to meet a certain percentage of attendance. Um, and that's, uh, that's how we get paid. But it, you know, the conversation kind of reminds me of Tim Ferriss's book, uh, the four hour work week, man, you know, and reading that book, a lot of it can apply to, uh, to medicine, uh, just because people are sick all the time. So you can't work four hours a week. Um, but he had some really interesting ideas about meetings and stuff and, and basically talked about the fact that, you know, very little gets done at meetings. Uh, and so he would make a point to try not to ever attend them unless he was made to. And if he was made to attend meetings, he would try to make a very clear idea of when he needed to leave. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, I fall somewhere in between those spectrums. I do think that some helpful things can be done in meetings, uh, but uh, it, it is exactly what you said. It depends on what the meeting is for and what it's about and what we're trying to accomplish because otherwise people just talk and nothing happens. And that is uh, kind of the opposite of my personality. So I, I do talk a lot, but I like to get a lot done too. Oh, I want to talk about the opportunity cost and return on investment of fellowships. You wrote, it, you wrote an awesome article on the White Coat Investor that really generated a ton of traffic and questions and uh, that's come up recently in my practice. One of my partners recently, after working for five years, decided to go back to do a fellowship. And, uh, you know, the, the argument really went back and forth about, you know, when is it a good idea to do a fellowship and, and under what circumstances? Um, now, you did a fellowship, an, a non-accredited fellowship. Um, and you have, how do you, do you have any regrets about doing that or you're just totally happy that you did that? No, I'm, I'm completely happy that I, I did what I did. Um it was non-accredited, so that means that I got paid more. I got paid about double what I made as a you know last year resident, a fourth year resident. Uh, so that was uh, part of the benefit. So my opportunity cost was a little less there, um, and I do what I love. You know, I mean, I love regional anesthesia. I love doing it. I love teaching it. I love you know performing the blocks. I love studying it, and so. Have, if I had not done a fellowship, I would have regretted it um, honestly. And so knowing that about myself regardless of how the money turned out, I was, I was pretty happy with the decision, but I do think that there is an opportunity cost that has to be considered, uh, you know, when we're having this conversation, um, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna lose salary, which is, you know, I talk about this in the white coat investor post, but you're going to lose, uh, salary. And most people mistakenly think that that's the first year salary that you're going to miss. In actuality, what happens is that the last year you would have been a partner, you're going to miss one year of that. Um, so that last year's salary, in my opinion, is the one that needs to be counted. So whatever your top pay is expected to be is the money that you're losing. Um, and you're obviously not going to be able to pay down debt or invest in the market, um, as, you know, as heavily, uh, while you're in training. And so if you're earning a fraction of the money you'd be earning as a, as an attending, then you're going to have to delay, you know, really destroying your debt or investing aggressively, uh, for just one more year. And, uh, I've actually heard it said that, you know, uh, a way to use this time is to, um, basically use it as a, uh, financial fellowship. So, you know, but I don't regret the decision at all. Well, so I guess what, in what circumstances would it be a bad idea to do a fellowship then? So I think that a fellowship is a waste of time if um, it's not going to help you get a job and you're not going to be doing what you did the fellowship in. So it's it's not uncommon that someone will do a fellowship in 
um, in something. I can use my own just so I'm not, you know, pointing fingers. Uh, but they do a fellowship in regional and they sign up for a job where they're going to be uh, sitting their own cases, you know, it's physician only anesthesia. And, uh, and the group does, you know, 5% of their cases under blocks. Uh, that's kind of a waste of a year because you're not really going to be using your skill set. Um, and in addition to that, you lost all the opportunity for the money that you would have made that year. Um, so I think that that's one classic example of, of that situation. And, um, and the other, honestly, is if that, if, if you're just doing it for the money, I mean, if you're just doing it as a purely financial reason, um, you know, that's probably not going to make you happy. Um, you know, and I think that that comes first. Well, and then there's also the break-even point. And so depending on the specialty, I think I was reading that, uh, Sure. Uh, what is it, infectious diseases and pediatrics, and then uh, trauma-trained um, orthopedic surgeons, their break-even point is like infinity. They'll never break even. So I think to your point is you kind of have, have to love that to even consider doing it. I completely agree. It's ironic that you mentioned that specialty. So um, despite the fact that I went into anesthesiology, uh, I really liked my pediatric infectious disease rotation because we had some of those most hilarious physicians uh, that were heading that group. And so we got to round with them every day and they'd make fun of each other and just had a great time. And they're just a great group of doctors. And so for a little bit, I, I teased around the idea of doing that, um, you know, and, and I've come to find out it's just because I, I liked those physicians and I realized I could be a great physician in other fields. Uh, but uh, I looked at their salary and I couldn't believe it. Um, you know, they spend an extra, you know, what, three years after pediatrics to do that. And um, I mean, they make less than a general pediatrician typically. It was incredible. Well, you know, they're such awesome people that they would have to be awesome to even consider doing that. Now, I kind of want to reach out and give them a big giant hug and uh, and introduce them to a couple of my attorney friends to help them start, you know, <laughs> renegotiating their contracts. Absolutely. You know, but, but, you know, again, I think it lends to the fact that they have such nice personalities that they would never even consider, you know, putting their patients in harm's way. They, they, they put taking care of their patients above all else. And you got to admire that. And, and no, I absolutely do. But I think you nailed it, man. If you want to go into an, a fellowship just for the money, it's going gonna, it's gonna to leave you empty. I totally agree with that, 100%. Um, my fear is one of, one of my peers, he's, he just left general anesthesia to do cardiac anesthesia. Oh, and wow. I'm hoping he's doing it because he really, really loves it. Um, um, his main, I think his main fear is that, that – Given we have other market factors playing into anesthesia, such and specifically CRNAs, that his concern is if CRNAs were ever made equal to anesthesiologists, that could put a lot of downward pressure on our on our specialty, um, not only in what we're doing, but also in reimbursement. And so he, his argument is, if you have a specialty like cardiac anesthesia, that that you'll never be at risk. And I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but it certainly gives you some you know level of protection. Yeah, I think it's uh, an interesting time to practice anesthesia. Um, this is a question that a lot of my my students ask me when they're thinking about going into anesthesiology. Um, but yeah, I think that it's it's tough because some of those things are really just emotional support. I mean, it makes you feel like your job's more protected. Um, but ultimately, a lot of these decisions are made by uh, politicians and bureaucrats that uh, may or may not know anything about medicine. Um, and so... You know, it's, it's one of the reasons why advocacy is important. Um, but you know, it's, it's also a, a conversation about, you know, where exactly we'll fit in, in the future of, of medicine and how, how our role might change. But, you know, the idea that someone else can't get, you know, 
um, someone to accredit them for, uh, for something is, is kind of, is kind of strange because even, even in my world that's happening, there are, um, programs for advanced practice providers to get pain fellowships. Um, and, uh, and that's a thing. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting. So are you talking about like nurse practitioners and um, CRNAs mainly, um, the ones that I've seen. Yeah. And and so they can, um, you know, or the the idea that you can go get a a weekend's training and and doing blocks and then come back and do it. Um, you know, it's, um, the, the question always is, is, you know, what is competent and there are disagreeing opinions on that. Um, you know, but I, I, uh, I will say that by and large, I absolutely love, where I work, where, you know, we supervise. Um, but, uh, I have very, very little problems with this in real life, you know, at all. And a lot of it ends up being conversations that are in our head, um, you know, about how we're going to protect our, you know, our job or our field. And, um, I think, and what I tell my residents is that if you're at the tip of the spear, you know, practicing anesthesia at the, at the, you know, intricacies and the, you know, furthest science that we have at that point, and you continue to push that spear further, um, you're always going to be protected. There's always going to be a need for someone like that, you know, but if you want to go and, you know, do a private practice job and, um, you know, have, you know, no weekends, no nights and, and do GI sedation, then, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there may be an issue in the future. Very good point. And, and again, there's, there's ample evidence that the care team model, in other words, anesthesiologists supervising multiple CRNAs provides, um, a safety net, that you wouldn't you would otherwise have if you're by yourself either as a physician and or as a CRNA. So um, I'm not really worried about it myself. Um, you know, for for people who are considering anesthesia and worrying about the you know the longevity of the specialty, I really don't think it's going to be a practice. In fact, I think with the advent of artificial intelligence and just improving technology, I think I think we have a very bright future. I agree. You know and. Like I said, I, I I love what I do at work and I have great relationships with, you know, all the CRNAs and residents that I work with um, and think the model works well. And, you know, I've definitely had experiences where, um, you know, uh, as part of that care team model, I helped save patients when things were missed. And I, I, I've definitely had, you know, people help me. Uh, it's a, that's why it's a team, you know, and, and, uh, and people talk about that. That's the idea behind systems-based safety systems. Um, you know, and, and the idea that the team is more likely to catch an error than a single individual. And so I'm, I'm definitely a big proponent of that. Excellent. Um, well, so let's, let's talk about the podcast. So this podcast is about negotiating and, uh, the whole premise is I believe very strong in researching every topic before proceeding with important decisions. Um, we've kind of already talked about this, but one of the most important decisions you can make, um, in your career is your first job and your first contract. Um, and it's because what it really does, it sets into motion your future earning for years to come, which will then compound over many years. So what, what is the most important piece of advice you would give a new grad given all the, uh, your recent, um, experience and what you've gone through up until this point? You know, we talked about some of it earlier, um, but this is kind of one of those situations where you need to trust, but verify, uh, and that's kind of the anesthesiology creed. Um, but you need to do your due diligence. You need to go and research the potential opportunities that are out there. Um, but before you do any of that, honestly, the most important thing is figuring out who you are and what you want. Because the right job for someone else may be the completely wrong job for you. Um, and so I think that time well spent deciding how you want to live your life and what your next five years are going to look like and then 10 years and 15, where do you see yourself in 20 years? You know, What do you want your life to be? And after you 
have decided that, discuss that with significant others or family members, um, then you can consider looking for a job that's going to help you get there. Uh, and that's going to look different for everybody. But I do think that uh, it's very difficult to get the information you need sometimes. You can talk to prior grads. Um, you can talk to the current partners. Uh, but sometimes there's questions that you, that you have that you feel uncomfortable asking in an interview setting or even afterwards. And they're important questions. And so I, I, you know, I do think you have to do as much research as you can, but the other, you know, other side of that is that you have to protect yourself and realize that 50% or so of, of residents who leave and go pick up, pick a job end up coming back or, or, you know, changing jobs at least in the first five years. And so you can't, you know, bury your anchor at the first job that you have expecting to stay for eternity, uh, when you know that that's not the case, um, for a lot of people. So I think that you need to first know yourself uh, and figure out who you are, what you want. And then you need to do your due diligence, do your research, uh, and ask all the questions that are important for you to, to get there. And then also to have a safety net to fall back on that you don't make a ton of financial decisions early on and inflate your lifestyle to a point that you can't leave the job if you want to. Well, and I think your website does a really nice job about that. Uh, you talk about financial, um, wellness and, and of course, um, uh, work-life balance. Um, so your, your website has grown considerably, um, you've written some amazing articles. Um, what, what are your plans for the future for, for your website? Um, you know, I, I think that I've got lots of plans, obviously to continue to produce content and all I've ever really wanted is to, to help people, um, and to get this message out there that financial independence can be used as a tool to prevent and treat burnout. Um, and then to help protect people from the conflicts of interest that exist uh, in the financial world. Um, you know, and, and so I'll continue to produce content. I, you know, I'd like to get it in front of the right audience because um, obviously it resonates with the right person, uh, but they have to see it first. Uh, I'm writing a book right now. Um, I've been writing a book for, I guess, six months now, and uh, it's currently being revised, and I have to decide how I'm going to publish that, if I'm going to just do it on Kindle Direct Publishing or if I'm going to go the formal route. Uh, so I'm still kind of thinking through that. Um, and, you know, at some point I'd like to make courses for people, uh, to kind of sort through these, these issues when they finish training. Cause my target audience is medical students, residents, and early career attending physicians, uh, and other high, you know, high income earning medical professionals. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what's on the docket for, for, for me right now. That sounds awesome. Um, you know, you did mention just now that, uh, you can use financial independence to fight burnout. What's your philosophy for, for how do you use financial independence to do that? So I think that what financial independence does, uh, you know, people talk about money a lot. We talk about wealth a lot. Um, and ultimately, that's not really the, you know, what you're shooting for. You're not aiming to just get a bunch of money. Uh, what you're aiming to do is to get enough money that it provides options. And those options allow you to design your life how you want to live it. So, you know, the idea there is that... Um, you know, we talked about these, you know, employee jobs or situations where uh, you don't have complete control, and and this allows you to take further ownership of your life and and kind of have some leverage. Uh, you can leave a job that you don't like. You can go part time uh, because you have the money to do that. You can uh, decide to uh, you know work outside of medicine or do a side hustle um, to help produce financial independence, and and you may find that you you enjoy that. So I think that all of those things, really, what they do is they provide options. And those options um, allow you to fight burnout and the, and the causes of it. Very well spoken. Um, well, great. Hey, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I want to encourage every single uh, person to go ahead and read your blog posts. They're amazing. 
Um, I think you've done an amazing job uh, reaching out and connecting with all the other physician um, influencers. And uh, I look forward to reading more of your stuff, man. It's awesome. Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to be on here. It was great fun. And hopefully you will be, this will be your first podcast. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Where I was made famous. Yeah, that's right. Well, hey, I just like, again, once again, I'd like to thank the Physician Philosopher for being on my show. If you'd like to learn more about him, head over to his website, thephysicianphilosopher.com. If you'd like to get the show notes on this podcast, head over to thephysiciannegotiator.com forward slash EP-06. Uh, there you'll find a little more information about the, phys- the Physician Philosopher, uh, PDF on the show notes, you can subscribe to the website uh, for updates on every single podcast, and you can also uh, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, and possibly even Spotify if they ever get their act together. Anyway, once again, I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and please subscribe, please give me some feedback, please give me some comments. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about some future episodes, um, if you'd like to have any tips or tricks, or if you want to be a guest on my podcast, hit me up. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Physician Negotiator podcast. For show notes and other resources, please visit thephysiciannegotiator.com.